Grab a seat. My name is Gavin, and uh, I am uh, an English-speaking pastor for our church. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I'm going to preach in English this morning. Uh, this is going to be week 10, the last week in our, our series, our study of the great book of Philippians. Uh, we've got 14 verses that we are going to uh, take a look at this morning. And I want to start by just saying, isn't our God generous? The heart of this book is not that God wants something for us or from us, but that he has something for us. The heart of the gospel message is a message of generosity. The idea being that, that we, being sinners by both nature and choice, were in debt. We were poor towards God, spiritually poor, like, like debt collectors calling on your telephone and showing up at your door, poor before a holy and righteous God. We were dirt poor. The wages of sin is death, and we owed an eternal death to God. We were broke. And yet God comes from heaven, and he generally, generously gives to us himself. Jesus leaves heaven, and he generously pays off our debt. He then generally gifts to us righteousness. He generously gifts to us eternal life. He generously gifts to us an eternal inheritance, uh, the sum of which we cannot fathom. He generously gives us himself by placing his Holy Spirit as a deposit with inside of us. He generously then invites us into his family, the church. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are the benefactors of an amazing eternal generosity. Our God is a generous God. We are rich in God, richer than Donald Trump would have us believe he is. We are rich in God. And the effect of receiving the generosity of God in our lives is that we then become generous like our God. God's people become generous like Jesus is generous. See, some people have wrongly taught a toxic ideology called uh, the prosperity gospel. They will say that God's motive for you and agenda for your life is that you would be healthy and wealthy and wise and have great hair and straight teeth. And if you don't, then you're just not asking earnestly enough or believing sincerely enough and you, don't, uh, you just have some sin that's getting in the way. Well, that's a lie from hell. <laughs> we know that because what do you say to that person? Well, what is that person when you say, well, what about Jesus who grew up as a poor man? Did he just have too much sin? Well, check your theology, son. No, he didn't have sin. What do you say to two-thirds of the world's Christian population who live in extreme poverty? They just don't have enough faith? Really? You're going to say that? Others have wrongly taught what we would call a poverty theology, the idea that Jesus was poor and that you too should be poor, and the poorer you are, the more spiritual you are. And if you're wealthy, they will then judge you and say, you should be more poor like Jesus and them. Well, maybe they should get more in common with Jesus because that's not what the Bible says in any way. The trouble with that is, one, the Bible doesn't say that, and two, the Bible largely views money and wealth as a blessing from God, uh, not a, a curse or something that is to be repented of. Uh, the Bible has uh, lots of good and godly wealthy people like Lydia who hosted the Philippians church using and enjoying their wealth and money to the glory of God and the good of his people. And so there's nothing wrong with owning uh, lots of stuff and money as long as our stuff and money doesn't start to own us. 
See, the, the biblical idea is not a prosperity theology or a poverty theology, but a theology of generosity. The idea being that of stewardship. God owns everything. He's apportioned to you a certain amount, and your job is to steward God's money in a way that reflects God's character, and his character is one of generosity. And so if God has apportioned to you a little bit to steward, you are to steward that with wisdom and generosity. And if God has apportioned to you a large sum, you are to steward that with wisdom and generosity. When we experience the grace of Jesus, we become generous like Jesus. We saw this in our Luke series. Remember the man uh, Zacchaeus? Wee little man, like Austin Edwards, but he had a big check he had a big checkbook. And before he met Jesus, he used people and he loved money. Then he met Jesus, was saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus. He then loved people and used his money to serve people. Do you see the difference? That's what happens in the heart of a Christian. We no longer use people to love money. We use money to love people. That's what happens in the heart of, this, uh, of the Christian. We become generous like Jesus. So this morning, uh, we're going to close out our Philippian series, 14 more verses. And what we're going to see in verses 10 through 23 is essentially... Paul's thank you note to the Philippians. The occasion is Paul is in jail. Uh, the, the custom of the day was that the state didn't pay for your care while you were in prison. You had to pay for your own meals and health care and to keep the lights on, etc. Uh, you were financially responsible for your own care when in prison. And so Paul has a great need. He is in prison for preaching the gospel. And the Philippians have gathered up a large and generous collection, a generous gift for their uh, church planting pastor, the apostle Paul. And they've sent it through a messenger, um, Epaphroditus. And now Paul is going to close his letter with a thank you note. This is, 20, uh, this is 13 verses of Paul's thank you note to the Philippians. And from this theologically rich thank you note, church, I want to press into our church four truths about gospel generosity, trusting that Jesus will, will shape our hearts to be a generous people like Jesus. He will shape our church to be a generous church. And so if you have your note page, go ahead and pull that out. Um, the four truths I want to unpack are this. Number one, the posture of generosity. Number two, the context of generosity. Number three, the assurance of generosity. And number four, the goal of generosity. It's a four-point sermon. Pray that we get out of here before lunch. Point number one, the posture of generosity. I would have you fill in this blank contentment. Write down contentment. The posture of a generous person is one of contentment. Let me say this. The, the default mode of the human heart is not that of contentment. We as humans tend to be in a, a various and fluctuating state of discontentment. When we find contentment, it's of, of, oftentimes replaced with discontentment as we kind of get over the toy and look for the next shiny and new thing. Uh, I'll remember uh, 10 years ago when my wife and I first got married, we got our first little apartment at Lion's Head Apartment Complex at 108th and Blondo. Anyone ever live in Lion's Head? It's a nice little, yes, it's a great, I feel like uh, all of our peers did. We're trendsetters. Anyway, uh, and it was wonderful. I remember moving in, it was, you know, our first place as a married couple, and it was amazing. We had vaulted ceilings and access to pools and three different workout facilities and we loved every one of our 600 square feet. It was absolutely amazing. And I remember literally thinking, I think I could live here forever. Like, I don't need to mow. It's just the, the AC. This is fantastic. What happened three months later? 
We didn't have Zillow at the time because I wasn't, uh, I'm not, I'm older than that. This is a decade ago. And so I'm on like CBS.com shopping for homes to buy. We had outgrown and become discontent with the apartment that we then thought we could live in forever. And so one year later, we buy a little house at 72nd and Dodge Street. All of a sudden, we have three bedrooms and a yard. This is spectacular. First thing we do, we pour a big patio in the backyard, and then we get a dog because we have the yard, and we join the neighborhood association and meet our neighbors. We think we could live here literally forever, and then we have a kid, and then we have another kid, and then we have another kid, and then we start feeding the kids. What happens when you feed kids? They start growing. We feed the dog. The dog starts growing. We feed the cat. The cat starts growing. Sarah starts feeding me. I start growing. You fast forward a decade later, we've got five human beings, a dog and a cat, and everyone's growing. And suddenly 1,200 square feet just doesn't feel like it did a decade ago. And so we buy the next bigger house this last December. Now our new house is great. I love this house. I'm thinking I could live in this house forever. All of a sudden we got four bedrooms. The dog's got a bigger yard to run in. Um, It's a fantastic setup. But you know what's going to happen? Even if we stay in this house, 15 years from now, God willing, thank you, Lord Jesus, do come. My youngest son's going to move out of the house. (laughs) Bless you, Lord. Um, I love my kids, but There is a cut the cord uh, season in life. And then we're going to be saying, why are we cleaning four bedrooms? Why am I mowing all of this grass? Why are we paying taxes on this big thing when there's two human beings in here? Amen. Hallelujah. Says the Laney's. Why, why, why? And the Wenzel's. All the empty nesters are saying amen. Hallelujah, right? And so contentment is a short experience reality here on earth. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having different housing needs through the changing experiences of life. All of that is normal and all of that is fine. But what is not fine is having a discontented heart. Having a discontented heart. Discontentment will always keep us from generosity because it always keeps us stretching, leaning, reaching for the newer, the bigger, the better, and the next thing. Look at our text this morning. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's talking about the generous gift that the Philippians had given them. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's our word, content. Let me give you a definition of contentment this morning. Contentment is when how you're doing isn't based upon how things are going. When how you're doing isn't based upon how things are going. When your status isn't contingent on your situation. When you can say, it is well with my soul, even when you might say it is not so well with the account balance on my online checking account. It is not so well with my marriage status. It is not so well with my housing situation. It is not so well with my portfolio. Nonetheless, it is well with my soul. For the contented person, how are you doing and how are things going are different questions. You get that? How are you doing and how are things going are different questions. This is Paul's testimony that he's going to model for both us and the Philippians. Look at the very next verse. It says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, Chris, abundance and need. Sound it out. (laughs) And. 
So much grace in this room. So much grace. How you're doing is not based upon how things are going, Chris. You're doing well. Paul knows what it's like to be brought low. Remember his testimony. Uh, He has been shipwrecked, left for dead, stoned, bitten by snakes. He's been abandoned by people that he loved and trusted and walked with for years in ministry. He's, he's saying, listen, I've had bad days. I've had bad months. I've had lean years. I know what it's like to be brought low. Additionally, he says, I know what it's like to abound. He's been in circles of influence and affluence and success. He's been among the elite and among the popular. He's feasted at Lydia's table. He's like Jenny from the block. He used to have a little. Now he has a lot. Everyone from the 90s laughed. Then he had a lot, now he's had a little. He's saying, listen, I've I've been on both sides of the economic spectrum, and yet neither has grabbed his heart, because the state of things doesn't define for Paul his well-being. Instead, he said he's learned a secret. He's learned a secret. Do you like secrets? My kids love secrets. I told Vivian yesterday, come here, I got a secret for you. Her eyes lit up. That's Paul. He says, I've, I've, I've learned the secret. I've been poor. I've been rich. All of that. None of it matters. I'm content in all situations because I've learned a secret. Here's the secret. Verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. That's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, let me say, I, I think this coffee mug verse is one of the most misapplied verses, okay? So we're going to talk about this for, for just a second. I think in our culture, we hear that verse and we think things that are actually the very opposite of what it's trying to say, right? This verse is plastered above weight benches all over our country. I can do all things through Christ Jesus, dear Lord. Help me, it's on the back of FCA churches and every high school across. I can do all things. Taken out of its context, this can mean whatever you want, which makes it great for a bumper sticker, Right? You want to get that promotion? If I could get someone on the keys, I could preach. You can do all things who strengthens you in Christ. You want to date that girl who's out of your league? You got that adult acne and she's like 6'2 and modeling, but you think you can go for it? You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You just need to believe, right? You want to beat that record PR mile time? Dig deep. You're going to get five minutes today. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You want to take up golf this year and shoot a subpar round by this fall? Just use Philippians 4.13 as your motivational quip. Dig deep. You'll be golfing like Jordan Spieth by October. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Now, I hate to bust your bubble, but no, you can't. Okay? Let's just keep it real for a second. She's not going to date you. You might not get the promotion, I promise you, you won't shoot a subpar round by this fall if you're just starting this spring, okay? What Philippians 4.13 is not saying is that I can change my situation through Christ who gives me strength. Listen up. He's saying I can face my situation through Christ who gives me strength. He's saying, even if you don't get the promotion, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength because your contentment isn't based on whether or not you get the new job. He's saying, even if you don't get the girl and you're 45 and would love to be married by now, you can still say it is well with my soul because I can face that because Jesus is better. I can face all things through Christ who gives me strength, even if I duff it off the first tee and shoot 160 on nine. <laughs> All the golfers laugh. 
It's okay, because my identity isn't wrapped up in my athletic prowess and reputation with my buddies. I can even face that because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. City Light, what Paul is teaching us is that when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. That's the secret. That's the secret. When you have Jesus, you can do all things and face all things and be content in all things through Christ's strength in you. True contentment doesn't come from your circumstances, which are going to change all throughout the varying seasons of life. True contentment comes from Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When you place your contentment in your circumstances, you're throwing away your contentment. You'll never have it. When you place it in Jesus, it's secure. And your circumstances can't take it away from you. That's the secret. Jesus is enough. There's a lie that all of us are believing, me too, and that's that if I have a little bit more of what I already have, then I will be happy. Well, it didn't do so good for you up until now, up until this point. What makes us think 20% more is going to suddenly make us have enough? Then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. The secret is to take our eyes off of our earthly treasure, learn to treasure our true treasure, which is Jesus Christ, and see that we are richer than we can ever imagine. Home in heaven, eternal inheritance, presence of God. We are rich in Jesus Christ. The Philippians got this. Not only did Paul get this, the Philippians got this. They, they didn't give generously to gospel ministry and Paul's care because they had a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that the Philippians were extremely poor. Yet with joy, they gave generously beyond their means. Their generosity wasn't the result of their abundance of stuff. It was a result of their contentment in Christ. Jesus was their treasure, and Jesus was enough. And from their contentedness, they were able to give generously to the things of God. So I want to ask you this morning, are you content? Are you content in your circumstances, where you are? I'm not asking how things are going. I'm asking how you're doing. Are you content? Is Jesus enough? When we learn that Jesus is enough, it frees us to be satisfied in him. It frees us from defining our well-being from the balance of an account or the square footage of our house. And it frees us to be generous. Until we're content, we will never be generous. The posture of generosity is contentment. Point two. The context of generosity is community. Look at verse 14. It says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. The context of generosity is community. On Friday afternoon, uh, I was at home studying for this sermon to preach this morning, and my family went to Walmart because Grady needed some new shorts. And so they went to Walmart, and the Walmart at the Irvington exit had a grand reopening because I think they painted some stuff. I don't know, but they had a bunch of free stuff. And so uh, my kids got free stuff, and they came home, and Grady had a stick of uh, cotton candy, a blue one. Uh, you care that it's blue. He came home with some blue cotton candy. I'm sure you do. And he saved a bunch to, to share with me. Um, is really cute. So I was downstairs studying and he, hey, we got free cotton candy, the Walmart granny, and he's sharing his cotton candy with me. And Levi, my two-year-old, knows no self-control, so he pounded it in the minivan on the way home. But Grady's kind of the cautious older sibling. He's calculated, you know, he's, 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 he's parsing it out and, and all that stuff. Well, Levi... He says, oh, we're sharing. I want some of that. And so he says, share with me. Share your cotton candy. Mom, Grady's not sharing. Mind you, he just ate his entire one. Grady saved some of his blue cotton candy to share with his dad. And all of a sudden, one of the core values of my son's life is sharing. Sharing is caring, right? Levi, all of a sudden, this is like, we are going to share in this family, and you're going to share that with me because we share 
mom and dad share this house with you and you don't pay rent and we share in this family, you know. I'm like, you're two, why are you? And uh, so later in the weekend, Vivian, my daughter, got in a timeout because she got in trouble for disobeying mom and dad. All of a sudden, sharing's not so important to Levi. He didn't go and say, can I share in your timeout? I see that you're having trouble. I would love to just share with you, like in solidarity, be with you in your struggles, you know? I would just love to share in the burden that has been placed on you by mom and dad, right? We share in this family. No, he ignores her trouble and goes about playing. But isn't that the human heart? We want to share in blessing. We don't share in trouble. But the gospel shows us a different picture. The gospel shows us a vastly different picture. The Philippians, look again at verse 14. It says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That's what happens when people experience the gospel and demonstrate it to each other. In the gospel, we see that Jesus took our sin, which was our trouble. It wasn't his trouble, it was our trouble. We sinned, Jesus didn't sin. It's close to a Chris. (laughs) We didn't sin, and yet Jesus came down and said, hey, you're in trouble, let me share in your trouble. Not share in your blessing, okay? So Jesus wasn't in heaven looking down thinking, man, humanity has done really well without me. They've acquired for themselves a great deal of joy, satisfaction, life, and fun apart from me. So this really makes me want to incarnate into a body, be born in a barn that I might share in their joy and blessing that they've created on earth. No, 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 no. It was the opposite. Jesus was quite content in heaven and in glory, and he saw our trouble, and he came down to the earth that he might share in our trouble. His cross was our cross, our trouble that he took on and shared out of love. He took our trouble, and he shared with us his blessing. That's the gospel. And people who are gripped by the gospel will move toward the needs and troubles of other people and share in them. We call this gospel community or the church. The church is not a building with programs and services. The church is a community of people circled around and gripped by the truth of the gospel. And we share in our blessings and we share in our troubles. This is what the Philippians do for Paul. He's in jail. He's got trouble. And they say, we're going to share in your trouble. Not because we got a lot. We're poor. But we're content because we have everything we need in Jesus. Therefore, the gospel is going to free us to share in your trouble. And they write a check. They don't just send like a flowered, get well soon, religious sentiment. They send a check. So we're going to share in your, your trouble is going to become our trouble. This is inconvenient. This is going to trouble us. But we're going to share in your trouble because you're in trouble. And that's what we do. That's the gospel story lived out among us. It's a picture of the gospel. Furthermore, in verse, first, verse 15... It says that they entered into partnership with him in gospel ministry. In other words, they're not only caring for him in prison, but they have been funding his gospel ministry. Just as they have benefited from the preaching of the gospel, so too they are going to participate that Paul might go forward and plant more churches and preach the gospel to more and more people, that more and more people might also hear about Jesus as well. They weren't just consumers, they were contributors to gospel ministry. That's what it means to be a partner and to share. And so City Light, the question for us is, are we consumers... Or are we contributors? Are we really living in gospel ministry and partnership as a church, or are we attending church services? Let me just share a few of the ways that I've seen this played out 
in our church. It wasn't but a couple months ago uh, that it came to our attention uh, that there were some refugees in our city that were coming over, uh, a lot of them, and a lot of them didn't have shoes. And we made like two quick announcements from the stage, like, hey, if you don't have shoes, or if you could get some shoes and leave some shoes, there's some refugees who could use some shoes. And like two weeks later, we had a thousand pairs of shoes. It's incredible. You guys shared in their trouble. There were real people in our city with sores on their feet, and you didn't say, well, that's their trouble. You said, no, I'm going to make their trouble my trouble, and so I'm going to go to Target, and we're going to buy some shoes, and we're going to share in their trouble. That's incredible. It's gospel community. It's what it looks like. Recently, there was a city group, and the dad lost his job, and they lost the majority of their uh, income as a family. The city group not only prayed for them, they said, we're going to pay your mortgage for the next several months until you can land another job. And just lay hands, send them a card, the verse, some flowers, doilies, and a casserole. He said, no, we're going we're to share in your trouble. We're going to take that, your burden, put the burden on it. We're going to write the check. We're going to share in that trouble. City Light, that is a good and God-honoring thing. That pleases the heart of our generous God. That is gospel generosity in the context of community. Good job. That's the kind of community uh, that the onlooking world looks onto and says, that smells like Jesus. There's something about that community. The context of generosity is community. Third point, the assurance of generosity. The assurance of generosity is eternal interest. Eternal interest. Let me ask you right now, what's the most valuable asset that you currently own? For some of you who are older, you might say, well, my house is paid off and it's worth this, or I've got an investment portfolio. Some of you who are younger might say, well, I got a used biology textbook. I think I can get about $100 for it. $89 if I sell it on Amazon or what, and maybe it's the shoes you got on. I don't know what it is, but I do know that in 100 years it will be of no value to you. There is nothing that you own right now that in the year 2116 will be worth a lick of anything to you. There's almost nothing we can buy, invest in, or give our resources to that are going to matter one bit in 100 years. But God gives us one good investment option. One place where we can put those dollars, look at verse 17. It says, not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's saying the gift was nice, like I can eat in jail, that's great, but I wasn't really seeking that. That's not primarily the biggest win in this thank you letter. What I'm most thankful for is that there has been a deposit in your credit. What Paul is talking about here, he's using an accounting phrase to describe the assurance of their giving. He says there will be an increase to their credit. He's referring to a heavenly reward. That in some sense, what we give in this life will be returned or reap dividends in the life to come. This is what Jesus said too in Mark 10. He says, whatever you give for the gospel in this life, you will receive back 100 fold in the life to come. I don't know what kind of return on investment you're getting on your current investments, but I doubt it's 100-fold. Additionally, he says in the same chapter, whatever you give to the poor, you are storing up treasures in heaven for yourself. Now, the Bible seems to consistently communicate that our giving and our generosity in this life will be rewarded exponentially in the life to come. Now, let let me be very honest for just a second, okay? If I didn't have to deal with this Bible as it comes to me, if it was Gavin the expert rather than the Bible that was preaching this morning, I wouldn't include this part. Um, Just very candidly, it seems to me, Gavin, 
that the greater good is to give expecting nothing in return, right? Isn't that the gospel? Like we would just write the check and like it's just for the good of giving. And so I think, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. But I can't ignore the fact that the Bible repeatedly and continually throughout these pages seems to motivate the believer into generosity in giving with some sort of heavenly return. And so we need to deal with that. According to the Bible, the only money that we will ever see again is the money that we give away. The only money that we will ever see again is the money that we give away, and it will come back to us with eternal interest. Now let me also say this. I feel weird preaching these sermons. I don't, in my flesh, like to preach about money and giving. And I think it's because historically I've seen it handled poorly. I've seen preachers manipulate and guilt people into giving money. I hate all that. Stupid. I hate that. Nothing will make my blood pressure rise more than a guy in a million-dollar suit trying to sell you a Holy Spirit-anointed hanky for $100, right? Get vulnerable people to call in on the phone and buy some Holy Spirit hanky, and they're going to fly off in their jet in their million-dollar suit, and you got some woman with no money. She's borrowing from her grandkids because she's got to get the Holy Spirit hanky because she's going to pray over her sick nephew, and it's, it's evil. Yuck, right? But listen, in spite of all of its abuses, I would not be a good preacher of the Bible if I didn't look at you eye to eye and say the best thing you can do with your money is invest it in gospel ministry and the ministry to the poor. That's what the Bible says. I don't say that to, to help the church's budget. The church is doing fine. I don't care. Give it elsewhere if you're, you're concerned about my motives. I don't get a raise. I'm saying you and me right now, as followers of Jesus, the best place we can invest our money is in gospel ministry and in ministry to the poor. Every dollar you spend on yourself, sock away in savings, will stay where it is when you go. But every dollar you invest in the poor and in gospel ministry are dollars that you're going to see again in eternity. I don't know what it looks like. What, you're going to get a better mansion? You get like a child? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But what I do know is that if I can trust this book with my eternal salvation, I can trust it with investing advice. Amen? This is the best thing I can do with my money is to invest it in the kingdom of God and the things of God. And so the assurance of generosity is eternal interest. Last one. The goal of generosity, God's glory. The goal of generosity, write it down, is the glory of God. When it's all said and done, underlying the posture of contentment in the context of community and the assurance of eternal interest, the goal of generosity in the heart of God's people is God's glory. That we would say, man, isn't he worth it? Isn't God glorious? Isn't God amazing? Has God not proven himself faithful and generous to me? And would we not leverage and invest our whole lives, every dollar, every dime, every day, that the world might know the God of heaven in the name of Jesus and the salvation that comes through no other name under heaven, Jesus Christ? That's the goal of our generosity is the glory of God, that his name would be famous. His name would be lifted up. Look at Paul's culminating declaration to his thank you letter to the Philippians in verse 20. He caps it all off by saying this in verse 20. It says, To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The idea is that when God's people give God's money to God's purposes, it brings God glory. God's name is praised. When people are generous, 
And this isn't just true in like an an ethereal, abstract sense, like, oh yeah, God's wonderful because you wrote a check. No, literally, God gets more praise when God's people give God's money to God's mission and the things of God. If you look at just the three-year history of this little church movement, City Light Church, I can look back and say it's true. This morning, we're going to lift the name of God in Spanish and in English. There's people from all over the world and all over the city, and we're crying out, how great is our God? And we're studying this book And why? Because God's people have been generous. The seat that you're sitting in costs money. The air conditioning that's on, thank you, Lord Jesus, hasn't always been in the history of this church, gets paid for because God's people are generous. All of our staff will get a paycheck this month, and I think, by the grace of God, they're all going to (laughs) clear. Hope so. Because God's people have been generous. This building is leased every month soon to be purchased uh, because God's people have been generous. God gets glory when God's people are generous. Furthermore, over in Benson, there will be 300 people this morning that lift high the name of Jesus. They join the angels in heaven singing to Jesus. There have been new people in that community that have been saved and baptized because you guys were generous with your money and with your leadership. Say, hey, we're going to plan a church. We're going to write a check for $100,000. We're going to help them with staff salaries so they get off the ground. We're going to help them get a down payment on a building. We're going to send some of our best pastors and the only ones who can actually read English and organize, (laughs) i.e. Tyler Zock. And and we're going to be generous. And because of that, God is literally receiving more praise this morning over in Council Bluffs. I thought there was like 50 people over there. We prayed with Pastor Doug this week. They have almost 200 people. They haven't even launched yet. Yes. They started with 60 people. I don't even think their building's safe to be in. They got like Y, like Live 220 right next to drinking fountains. And it's like, they're not ready to take on. But God says, that's okay. Well, I'm just going to protect this place because people need to worship God. And so almost 200 people are praising the name of Jesus. And this book is being preached and proclaimed. Why? Because you guys were generous. You wrote 100000 Where did those $100,000 came from? From your checking accounts. We don't have some stream of money that comes in. It's you. It's us. It's this community saying, this is the best investment I can make. And because of it, God is literally receiving more glory this morning in this city and in this area because God's people have been generous. Right now, 20 of our college students, we prayed for them last week, are in Bangkok, Thailand. We just got a report via email this week that several Thai college students have received Jesus as Savior and Lord. Why? Because you wrote checks and funded their ministry. God is receiving glory in the Thai language, in the Thai tongue this morning because you were generous. So when Paul says, to God be the glory forever and ever, that's not sentiment, that's real. We write checks, God's people use God's money to fund God's ministry, and God gets the glory. That's the goal of giving, the name and fame of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're putting your money into, but if you can find something better to invest in, do it. I'll end with this. I'm not going to give a new giving goal for the church. Uh, We're not taking a special offering this morning. We're not going to put like a thermometer on the back wall and (laughs) have a giving campaign and a red Sharpie. And uh, We we don't roll like that at City Light. I'm not even going to lay out, here's what it was in the Old Testament. It was a tithe and then a New Testament. It might be more because they said this, listen. I don't, I don't think we can get that calculated. I think what we can do is look at the gospel and say, has God not been generous toward us? Has God not provided everything that we need? Is Jesus not incredibly generous to give his life that we might have life? 
Is Jesus not incredibly generous to give up the privileges of a son of God that he might be made a slave on a Christ that we would no longer be slaves to sin but be counted as sons of God? Is God not generous? City Light, would we be gripped by the selfless generosity of our God demonstrated through Jesus and respond as a generous church, gladly giving our money and our lives back to him in glad gratitude? We're going to respond this morning by the taking of communion. Uh, So if you're a communion server, please go to the back and prepare yourself. Wash your hands. They will be coming forward in just a second. They use hand sanitizer, so germ-phobes, it's all good. It's in communion that we realize that um, the generosity of God is real. Because we look at the bread and we say, that's the body. That's the price that was generously paid for our salvation. We look at the juice and we say, that's the blood. That's the price that was paid that we might have oneness with God and eternal hope in spite of the sins and mess that we have made. And so we're going to celebrate and remember the generosity of God this morning. Listen to the instructions for communion in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, but in the fall, uh, where are we? There we go. Go a little bit further. For I received, verse 23, from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you've received the generous grace of God by believing in Jesus to forgive your sins and give you eternal life, you're welcome to the Lord's table. Uh, The servers are going to come forward. The band, go ahead and come up right now, even as I pray. Uh, They're going to play. Go ahead and stand and worship. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and come forward for the elements. There's servers in the back as well. If you have food allergies, you do have a very uh, special station in the back. Uh, We have a a prayer team. If God has ministered to you this morning or you need someone to pray with or for you, I'll make myself available in the back. If you're on the prayer team, please join me in the back, and we would love to pray for you. Jesus, you are the generous God. We cannot outgive you. You are the one who had eternal life yet gave it up on a cross, that in that moment the eternal consequences of all of our sins would be paid for in an instant. And now, God, Would we be people that gladly receive your generosity and mirror that by sharing in one one another's troubles, leveraging our lives for gospel ministry, and looking forward to the great inheritance that awaits us on the other side? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.